If you would open your Bibles, please, to 1 Corinthians chapter 14. I'm going to get right into it because uh, we want to have a time of uh, prayer and ministry at the end, and I want to make sure that, uh, that uh, we have plenty of time for that. Um, so we're going to look at um, uh, 1 Corinthians 14, the first 33 verses, but to get a little perspective, uh, I'm actually going to begin backing up a few verses to chapter 13 and verse 8. So 1 Corinthians 13, 8, and reading on. And Paul writes in the Word of God, 1 Corinthians 13, 8, Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part... Then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. Pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. Before I go on, let me just make note of this. Spiritual gifts are temporary Love is permanent. Do you see that? Love will never end. Spiritual gifts have their place, but they will come to an end. So spiritual gifts are temporary. Love is permanent. They, these spiritual gifts, will last until the perfect comes. Okay? And that is, of course, Jesus. And then we will know even as we're fully known. That's just for a little bit of perspective. Now back to chapter 14, verse 1. Nevertheless, pursue love and, 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 in addition to pursuing love, earnestly desire spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. For one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men but to God. For no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the Spirit. On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. The one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself. But the one who prophesies builds up the church. I'm sorry, one more little editorial comment I wanted to make before reading on. Would you please take note of every time the Apostle Paul uses the word build, upbuilding, building up, build the church. It's very key in this. Please note that when you see it, when you hear it. Verse 3 again. On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. The one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. Now, I want you all to speak in tongues, but even more, 
to prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues unless someone interprets so that the church may be built up. Now, brothers, if I come to you speaking in tongues, how will I benefit you unless I bring to you some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching? If even lifeless instruments such as the flute or the harp do not give distinct sounds, how will anyone know what's being played? And if the bugle gives an indistinct sound, who will get ready for battle? So with yourselves, if with your tongue you utter speech that is not intelligible, how will anyone know what is said? For you will be speaking into the air. There are doubtless many languages, different languages in the world, and none is without meaning. But if I do not understand the meaning of the language, I will be a foreigner to the speaker and the speaker a foreigner to me. So with yourselves, since you're eager for manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. Therefore, one who speaks in a tongue should pray for the power to interpret. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. What am I to do? I will pray with my spirit, but I will pray with my mind also. I will sing praise with my spirit, but I will sing praise with my mind also. Otherwise, if you give thanks with your spirit, how can anyone in the position of an outsider say amen to your thanksgiving when he does not know what you are saying? For you may be giving thanks well enough, but the other person is not being built up. I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. Nevertheless, in church, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. Brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking be mature. In the law it is written, by people of strange tongues and by the lips of foreigners will I speak to this people and even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Thus, tongues are a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers. While prophecy is a sign not for unbelievers, but for believers. If therefore the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues, and outsiders or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you are out of your minds? But if all prophesy and an unbeliever or outsider enters... He's convicted by all. He is called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed. And so, falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. What then, brothers? When you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. If any speak in a tongue, let there be only two or at most three and each in turn and let someone interpret. But if there is no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in the church and speak to himself and to God. Let two or three prophets speak and let the others weigh what is said. If a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent. For you can all prophesy one by one that all may learn and all be encouraged, and the spirits of prophets are subject to prophets. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. As in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches, for they're not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, 
As the law also says, if there is anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. Or was it from you that the word of God came? Or are you the only ones it has reached? If anyone thinks he's a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I'm writing to you are a command of the Lord. If anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. So, my brothers, earnestly desire to prophesy and do not forbid speaking in tongues, but all things should be done decently and in order. Wow, that's quite a long and interesting passage of Scripture, is it not? Not going to be able to look at all of it in detail, but before we go any further, let's pray and ask the Holy Spirit for help. Our Heavenly Father, we come to you in the name of Jesus in need of your grace and in need of your mercy. Lord, I pray that you would guide us in our time in the Word and our time in prayer afterward that you might be glorified and that we might be built up in our faith. We ask for your help now in Jesus' name. Amen. Theodore Roosevelt was one of our nation's greatest presidents. He's actually chiseled into Mount Rushmore along with Washington and Lincoln and Jefferson. And so in that sense, Roosevelt is literally bigger than life. He also seemed to have an ego that matched that size. His daughter said of him, he wanted to be the bride at every wedding and the corpse at every funeral. Now, maybe that wasn't a fair estimation because his daughter was quite a character, too. Uh, but it's funny because it captures something of human nature. Um, Roosevelt did have an outsized ego, but he was, after all, a great man. That doesn't excuse him, but what about you and me? What's our excuse? We're not great, but doesn't there lurk within each of us some kind of a similar desire John Calvin said this about human pride and selfishness. He said, But there is no one who does not cherish within himself some opinion of his own preeminence. There is no one who does not cherish within himself some opinion of his own preeminence. We think we're right. We give ourselves the benefit of the doubt, don't we? We give ourselves the benefit of every doubt. We always mean well. And even when something goes wrong, like in a relationship, it wasn't our intention. We were just misunderstood. And that's because of our own basic self-orientation. That's why we have to be commanded to love God and to love others. It just doesn't come naturally. We are naturally self-focused and self-oriented. Now, most people recognize that temptation and take pains to resist it. And then some just kind of live in their own little world, oblivious to people around them. And then there are a few people who just cast off all restraint and give full expression to their selfishness as if they were the center of the universe. But they're in the minority. Well, in some form, selfishness was the primary motivation of many in the Corinthian church. And the result of that selfishness was disorder and confusion. 
So the chapter that we just read is a chapter of correction. They were abusing spiritual gifts. Now, I've got four little grandchildren in my home right now, and it's bringing back thoughts of when I was a parent. And, you know, you put up with the wildness for just so long, and then after a while, it's just, all right, everybody sit down and be quiet. And they all snap too. Now, I don't commend myself for saying that, but that's what Paul could have said. All of this tongue speaking was getting out of control, and their meetings were filled with confusion. And Paul could have just said, all right, that's enough. No more tongue speak. No more spiritual gifts. Just cut it out. But he didn't say that because he was the father of this church in Corinth. And he knows that the cure for abuse is not disuse, but proper use. So he's taking the time to instruct them. And some of this is what would be culturally current for them in Corinth at the time. It doesn't all completely translate here into the 21st century. But human nature hasn't changed. And the basic problems the Corinthians had, the problems that he addresses in this letter, like divisions, they were bringing lawsuits against one another, there was sexual immorality, they were getting drunk at the Lord's Supper. I mean, the motivation behind all of these things was selfishness. And that's the reason that Paul wrote this letter and wrote 1 Corinthians 13, right in the midst of a discussion on spiritual gifts, is this wonderful exposition of love. Because that beautiful description, it wasn't to crown the Corinthians as paragons of virtue. It was to remind them of what it's all about. Loving God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and loving our neighbor as ourselves. That's what we're here for. And in the section we're considering today... Their self-interest was the underlying cause of the confusion, the disorder that characterized their meetings. Paul was writing to correct them. Here's what the apostles interested in. And here's what God is interested in. Number one, that he be glorified, that God be glorified. Number two, that the church be edified, built up. And number three, that the world be evangelized. That God be glorified, that the church be edified, and the world evangelized. Now, as I said, this is a corrective message. It's not a corrective message for this church because there's decency in an order here. But it's still good for us to keep in perspective the motive for which we do anything that we do. It's got to be the motivation of love and the building up, the edification of our brothers and sisters. So when we're teaching about Gifts of prophecy and tongues. And that's what I've been asked to speak about today. Not entirely, but that's the main thing here. Paul begins with these words. He says in verse 1, Pursue love and eagerly desire spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. Let's keep those words in mind as we look at spiritual gifts. It's a big picture attitude we always need to keep in mind because in our desire to pursue spiritual gifts, it's easy to criticize others or say, well, you're not as into it as you should be or 
or, you know, I've noticed in the church over the 45 years that I've been a Christian, over the 40 years I've been a pastor, that people tend to move in one of two directions. Some people are more comfortable in a prayer meeting. Some people more in a Bible study. Some people are more given to the heart. Some people are more given to the head. Some people really want to experience things. Other people want to really learn things. We can tend in those directions and say, well, it's the Spirit. No, it's the Word. Well, you know what? The Spirit inspired the Word so that it's been written down for us. They always go together. And the heart and the head are connected in a healthy human being by something called the neck. If they're not connected, there's a problem. And even though they have done heart transplants, I don't think they're ever going to do a head transplant. The fact is we need both and we need to work together and we need to keep love in mind when we're pursuing spiritual gifts. We should also be pursuing love and the blessing for our brothers and sisters. Now, what's the reason why we gather as Christians? Why in the world did you bother coming here today instead of sleeping in? It's cold outside. Why did you get yourself up and come here? Why are you here? Why did you come? Why do we meet together as Christians? What's the purpose for our gatherings? Well, the reason that we meet, the goal of the assembled church, as Paul outlines here, is corporate edification to the glory of God. Build up, build up, up building, build up, build up. It's all in here. That's why we come together. Hopefully, we're going to be built up. We're going to be strengthened in our faith because our faith needs to be strengthened. That's why we gather together. So what should you bring with you to church besides your Bible, which you should bring with you to church? You should also bring along with your Bible a passion for edification. What can I do? What can I say? How can I act in a way that's going to be a blessing to my brother and sister? And it can be as simple as a heartfelt greeting, a word of encouragement, a smile, a handshake. All of those things really mean something. They really can communicate something of the Spirit of God. Passion for edification. It's all throughout here. Now, now, okay, with our attitudes all tuned up and our true goal in focus, we're ready to take a closer look at prophecy and tongues. Let's first discuss prophecy, the New Testament gift of prophecy. Paul says, pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. For one who speaks in a tongue... Speaks not to men, but to God, for no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the spirit. On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. The one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. Now, I want you all to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues unless someone interprets so the church may be built up. New Testament gift of prophecy is for edification, for building up. It's described as achieving the following. Spiritual upbuilding, encouragement, and consolation. The gift of prophecy is to stir up, to build up and to cheer up. 
Edification is the dominant thought, but encouragement or exhortation and consolation are also there. I like those two words. He kind of splits it up into three things. This is what a true word of prophecy will be upbuilding, but it will also exhort. It's kind of like the coach from the sideline that's yelling at his team to encourage them. Come on, you can do it. But then that consolation or comfort is a little bit more personal. That's when the coach speaks to the player in his ear. A personal word that's tailored specifically for that player. So prophecy is for edification, exhortation, and comfort, or different words are used, but it is for that purpose of upbuilding. Now, it's like a word fitly spoken. The right word at the right time. Proverbs 25 says that a word fitly spoken is like apples of gold in settings of silver. What does that mean? It's like a finely customized, crafted piece of jewelry just for you. And you love it. That's a word fitly spoken. A word of prophecy is a word fitly spoken. It comes instantaneously from the Spirit of God who then uses it to inform, to edify, to exhort, to encourage, and it will resonate with your spirit. Okay? Well, prophecy needs to be weighed and evaluated. Toward the end of the chapter, Paul was saying, let two or three prophets speak, let the others weigh what is said. That means evaluate. If a revelation's made to another sitting there, let the first be silent, for you can all prophesy one by one so that all may be encouraged and learn, and the spirits of the prophets are subject to prophets. For God's not a God of confusion, but of peace. What's he saying? If something's revealed to another, okay, let the first be silent. No striving, no trying to dominate the meeting, no attempt to impose on others or hold the floor. No, God's a God of order. He's God of peace. And no one can say, I had to speak. I was compelled by the Spirit. No, no, no. Spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets. There's self-control here. But he said prophecy must be weighed. It must be evaluated. In 1 Thessalonians 5, Paul said with regard to prophecy, he said, prove or test all things. Hold fast that which is good. In 1 Corinthians 13, 9, Paul said, we know in part and we prophesy in part. Therefore, it must be evaluated. Prophetic utterances, though inspired by the Spirit, are not on a par with Scripture. They must be evaluated by Scripture. Scripture is the plumb line. Every human word of prophecy is going to be to some extent in part. It's going to need to be tested. We are to hold fast that part which is good. We are to eat the fish and spit out the bones. Many years ago when I was pastoring in Lancaster, when I first got up there, we didn't have a building. And the church met at different places, met at different schools, met at fire hall. We met at a dog pound. Well, one, one, for a few Sundays there, we couldn't get a place on a Sunday morning, so we met Sunday afternoon. 
And uh, this one Sunday afternoon, some dear sister had a word of prophecy. And it went something like this. Uh, I believe the Lord is saying that, uh, that this, this morning, my children, this morning, my children, I say to you, uh, I am your good shepherd and you will hear my voice. And, uh, and it was a very nice word. But after the meeting, a, a man came up to me. He was very, very troubled. How could that be God speaking? Doesn't he know the difference between morning and afternoon? And I said, well, of course he does. Uh, but unfortunately, this dear lady doesn't seem to know the difference. <laughs> well, we know in part and we prophesy in part. See, we have this treasure in earthen vessels and sometimes the earthen vessels get morning and afternoons mixed up. Okay. By the way. Along these lines, be very, very wary of personal prophecy. That's somebody that says, I've got a word for you. Never let it be directive. Sometimes that can be beneficial in terms of being confirmatory. So someone comes up to you, I've got a word for you. God says, go to Africa and proclaim the gospel to the nations. And so you sell everything and you better check that out before selling everything. Okay. I, look, I say this because um, under this guise of prophetic word or a word from the Lord, a lot of foolishness has taken place over the years, and we want to be aware of it. These things need to be evaluated. The nature of prophecy in the New Testament is quite different from the recorded prophetic oracles of the Old Testament. They are Scripture. In the New Testament, remember, the key is they should be for building up, for encouragement, for comfort, for consolation has to be evaluated. And what is the standard for evaluation? Of course, it's the Word of God. Further, we could say, though, Paul doesn't provide any criteria here. A word of prophecy would have to agree with the gospel of Christ crucified, the truth of Scripture, the tradition of Jesus, sacrificial love for others, mutual building up, all other things that he's spoken of in this letter. And who does the evaluating? You, the congregation, do the evaluating. We are all to evaluate. Let the others weigh what is said, verse 29. We are responsible. This would certainly include the pastors of the church, though they're not specifically mentioned here. When a prophetic word comes forth, those in leadership will often consider what it requires in terms of explanation or follow-up. So there's a congregational responsibility to weigh what's prophesied. And then there's often a leadership responsibility to guide the church as to, okay, therefore, what should we do? There's also a danger. I, I just uh, want to mention this in passing of unevaluated prophecy that comes through television, radio, and especially that new thing they call the interweb. I think. I know what it is. I'm just... But I didn't always, I have to admit. Uh, these media, they make it possible for people to make prophetic claims that go without any evaluation. They're nowhere subject to any body of believers. Usually such so-called prophets are not part of any church. They're not responsible to anyone beyond themselves. And it's a tremendous opportunity for abuse. Great harm has been done by these supposed words from God. 
Because not only the words, but also the lives and the character of those who prophesy should be evaluated. Jesus said about false prophets, you will know them by their fruit. So we are to be fruit inspectors. If a person's life is disorderly, their prophecies, so-called, are not to be heeded. And Paul bases all of these rules on the very character of God when he says God is not a God of confusion, but he's a God of peace. And because of all this, we recommend modesty in the mode of speaking. So to get up and say, yea, yea, thus saith the Lord with the authority of an Elijah? No, no. How about something like, I believe the Lord has put on my heart, and then you go ahead and say it. If it is the Lord, it will carry no less weight. And it doesn't have to be based on the strength of your personality. Much better to express yourself with reserve for the purpose of building up, stirring up, and cheering up. And now tongues and interpretation. The gift of tongues, like other spiritual gifts, is a sign of the Spirit's presence among His people. And as far as I am aware, it is the only gift that does not occur before the time of the New Testament. What is it? Well, tongues is prayer or praise directed toward God in a language not understood by the one speaking. Verse 2. 14.2, for one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men, but to God. Now, a fair reading of chapter 14 shows that Paul is comparing and contrasting spiritual gifts of prophecy and tongues. He clearly favors prophecy over tongues, and that's because of its usefulness for edification in the church gathered. But he does not disparage tongues at all. It, too, he says, can produce edification if it's followed by interpretation. Verses 4 and 5, the one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. Now, I want you all to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, unless someone interprets so that the church may be built up. All right, so how are we to understand this? Well, Paul's made it clear the purpose of the church gathered is mutual edification through worship of God to the glory of God. The problem in Corinth was that tongues were being overemphasized and utterances were being given without any interpretation. And so there was disorder and confusion and apparently spiritual pride was underneath it all. Even spiritual utterances, if they are unintelligible, they do not edify, they do not fulfill the goals of the gathered church. So... Paul corrects. And what emerges from a careful reading of this text is that there are two different contexts where tongues might be employed. Their use could be in the church gathered. Verse 23, verse 26, when you come together. Paul says that when you come together in this context, if there is an utterance in tongues, it must be followed by an interpretation so that all may be edified. Now, 
I will grant you in most of the church settings that I've been in, in small groups and prayer meetings, it's a rather rare occurrence to hear a tongue followed by an interpretation. It wasn't in my early days of the charismatic experience, but it is now, and I'm not sure why that is. Nevertheless, this truth still holds. And when the church is gathered, if there is an utterance in tongues, it must be followed by an interpretation so there can be edification. And if that's not the case, we're all supposed to remain silent and wait. I'm not sure for what, but (laughs) that's one context, the church gathered. There's also another context, and that's the individual Christian's prayer life. Paul said, I thank my God I speak in tongues more than you all. And the Corinthians spoke in tongues a lot. So the Apostle Paul obviously spoke in tongues a great deal. Are we to infer that everything he said was always followed by an interpretation? I don't think so. I think when he was traveling from one city to another, he probably spent a lot of his time praying in tongues on the way for his own personal edification, to thank God in the Spirit, to bless God in the Spirit, to sing in the Spirit. Uh, I drove up here from Gaithersburg and... You know, part of the time that I was driving up here, I was praying or singing in the Spirit in anticipation of our time here today. I was trying to edify and build up myself. So you have these two different contexts. All right, just a few facts about this admittedly strange gift. Speaking in tongues is not communication with men. It's communication with God. Speaking in tongues is uttering mysteries to God. The one who speaks in tongues edifies or builds up himself. And there's nothing wrong with that. That's perfectly fine. It's commended by Paul. It's praying and it's singing in the Spirit. This is equivalent to praying or singing in tongues. Praying in the Spirit means my spirit prays as the Spirit gives utterance, the Holy Spirit, even though my mind is unfruitful. You say, well, what possible good could that be? I I don't know, but Paul says it is uttering divine mysteries to God, and it builds me up. So that's a good enough reason, I think. The one who speaks in a tongue is not ecstatic. He's not that is outside of himself. He's not out of control. He remains in control of his will. As Paul said, I will pray with the Spirit. I will pray with the understanding. It's always under the will or the control of the believer. Now, our time is uh, coming where we want to we make sure we have time for prayer. And I want to share a little story with you as we go into that. But it's a funny thing. In the history of the church, um, this has been a gift that has often been in neglect. But there are reasons, I believe, given in Scripture why this is important. In the letter of James, it says very clearly that no man, no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. No human being can tame the tongue. No human can, but God can. And I think it might be ironic that in the humble, mysterious Gift of tongues, we speak not to men, but to God, divine mysteries in the Spirit. And the yielding of oneself to God in the gift of tongues, which not all have, true, 
But many have. I want you all to speak in tongues, said Paul. He must have meant that as an open invitation, at least. In doing that, does it not humble us and bring us further under the control of our Heavenly Father? And is that not a good thing? On Wednesday, uh, for those of you that are able to come, uh, it'll be a more informal time. We'll have opportunity to uh, um, maybe teach a little bit more, take questions, because I'm sure that there are questions that have been raised by all this. But I'd just like to enter into our time of prayer at the end by sharing with you a little story. It, it took place in the summer of 1972. Uh, in March, March 5th, you know what today is? March 5th. 1972 is the day that I prayed a desperate prayer. God, if you're real, please help me. God, if you're real, Jesus, if you're real, please help me. I don't want to drink anymore. I don't want to do any more drugs. I don't want to smoke anymore. To me, smoking was the biggest habit I had. I didn't realize I had problems of jealousy and fear and anger. To me, those were the things that were I was convicted of. I said, if you can help me, please do. That day was a turning point in my life. That was 45 years ago today, a Sunday night, a Sunday night. Yeah, thank you, Lord. That was the beginning of a huge change because within a week I was filled with the Holy Spirit and my life completely changed. I have some more I'd love to share with you about that on Wednesday. Four months later, uh, I was I was on fire I found myself at a prayer meeting at Wesley Seminary. Uh, it was a Wednesday evening. There were a number of Methodist pastors, men who had entered the ministry later in life, and they were there for a summer refresher course, and they were having a prayer meeting. And I had met a Methodist pastor. He said, would you like to come along? So I did. I brought my Bible, had my big old Bible here. I, I didn't know anything, but, I, you know, I was, I was reading it, and I was there with all these guys. And, and I remember during this prayer meeting, people were just expressing their hearts. And there was this little guy there. He looked like he was maybe in his late 40s or early 50s. And he began to just express himself to the group. And basically, he was just at the end of his rope. He was so down. He was so discouraged. I suppose today we might say he was burned out. And he just expressed himself. It was He was desolate. And I remember I was in the circle. It was a big circle. Maybe about 40 or 50 men. And, and I did something that was uncharacteristic for me. I, I, I felt compassion for this guy. I wasn't really a very compassionate person. But I felt compassion for this. It must have been the Holy Spirit. And I... With my big fat Bible, I walked all the way around that circle where he was on the other side because I had just seen a portion of Scripture and it so impacted me that I underlined it and I wanted to share it with him. It was from Luke chapter 11. And I opened, I said to him, you know, I just kind of quietly turned around and I, I said, look at this. Jesus said, ask and it will be given you. Seek and you will find Knock and the door will be opened for everyone who asks receives and he who seeks finds and to the one who knocks it will be opened. For which of you fathers, if your son asks you for a loaf of bread, would give him a stone? If you then being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? 
And I shared it with this guy, and I thought, he's going to be as excited as I was. And boy, was I disappointed. He, he just looked around so as to kind of pat me on the head and say, oh, okay, thank you very much. Gosh, yeah, that didn't happen the way I wanted it to. Well, two days later, Friday night, I was at Healy Hall at Georgetown University. That's where the grand Catholic charismatic prayer meeting took place back in the early 70s, a real move of the Spirit. There were several hundred people there, and we all prayed, and there was prophecies and tongues, and the Spirit was really moving, and, and then I was there. And then on the other side of the room... Who stands up to testify but this little guy? He stands up and says, I have just had an encounter with the Holy Spirit in the last two days that has totally turned things around and he's given glory to God. And I'm thinking, hey, hey, I, I, you know. <laughs> I thought maybe he'd mentioned, yeah, there was this anointed servant of God that came from nowhere and she, and he even quoted the scripture, and I, I think, and anyway, I, I remember try, I was tried so hard to find him afterwards so he could praise me, and uh, I was unable to make contact with him. He was an older guy. He's probably with the Lord now, and he's, if he's listening, he's probably laughing at me still. Listen, I just say that for, the, for this reason. I'm going to have a time of prayer now. The fact is that the Holy Spirit of God the third person of the Godhead applies the work of Christ to our lives in the here and now. He makes Christ real to us. The Holy Spirit will do for you what you need to have done, but can't do yourself. If, if you could, you already would have done it. And it could be in the area that you're struggling in, right? It could be an area of healing, could be in the area of discouragement. could be fear, anxiety. It could be a relational breakdown. It, whatever that might be. And even if everything is going fine right now, there may be one or two people where that's the case. <laughs> you know, you can still praise God for it. So as we go into a time of prayer right now, I'm going to ask Albert to uh, come back and take over. As I close us in prayer... We're going to ask the Holy Spirit to move. And for those of you that will have to get your children, of course, you have to get them. For those of you that can stay, of course, you will. Are you ready to come up? All right, let me, let's pray together.